Well, as, as we get started this evening, I want us to, to pause for a moment, and I want you to think about this question. Closer? Is that better? I want you to pause and think about this one question. What is it you expect from God when you pray? What is your expectation? Now, for some of us, we, we hear that question, and our gut kind of reaction is that we just kind of recoil a little bit at that, right? I mean, we think, what do I expect from God? Who am I to really expect anything from God, right? I mean, you think, and maybe, maybe even the more you hear the question, maybe you become even a little bit indignant because you think, who am I to think or to expect anything at all from God? I mean, after all, Scripture is very clear. Scripture says, who is man that you are even mindful of him, right? I mean, so you sit there and, and maybe you think, I can't really expect anything from God. Maybe the better question is, what does God expect from me when I pray? Again, the question is this, what do you expect from God when you pray? Now, maybe some of you sit there and you think, okay, I know where you're going with this. So yeah, I've got a couple expectations every time I pray. I expect one, I expect God to hear me, right? I expect God to hear me when I pray. And I also, I also expect God to answer I expect God to give some kind of an answer. Now, of course, I don't expect God to answer exactly the way I pray. But yeah, every time I pray, I expect God to hear me, and I expect, I expect God to answer. I mean, I know that his thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are not my ways. There's no way that I can know exactly God's will or God's plan for my life. So there's no way I can expect God to answer exactly the way I pray. But if you're asking me, do I have an expectation from God? Yeah, I do. I've got two expectations. I expect him to hear me. And I expect him to answer. Again, the question is this. What do you expect from God when you pray? I think there might be a third group here tonight, albeit a very small one, that when you hear that question, you think, yeah, I have an expectation of God. And you might say that I expect every time I pray for God to hear me, but I also expect God to answer in exactly the way that I pray. Now, if you're in that group, you'd be really quick to kind of throw some qualifiers on that. You would say, okay, every time I pray, I realize that sometimes God's answer is just no. I realize sometimes that my prayer is a little too self-centered or a little too self-focused, or maybe it's not completely in line with whatever God's plan is for my life. But that's not the question. If you're asking me, do I have an expectation? Yeah, I do. I expect every time I pray that God will hear me and he'll answer the way I pray. So again, you're sitting here tonight. Where do you fall on this question? What do you expect from God when you pray? Maybe a different way to frame the question is kind of like this. What do you think God wants you to expect from him when you pray? Think God wants you to expect anything at all? There's a great story. Pete Rose. Everybody knows Pete Rose, the all-time hit king in Cincinnati. And it was the last year of Pete Rose's career. He was down in spring training. He was taking some swings in, in the batting cage. And one of the reporters came up and saw Pete there and shouted out, Hey, Pete, what do you think you're going to hit this year? And basically what that question is, what's your batting average going to be this year? If you know anything about baseball, if you can hit 300, if you can get a hit 30% of the time, you will make millions and millions of dollars. 
The last person to hit 400 did it 70 years ago, okay? So Pete Rose, he yells back, what are you going to hit this year? He says, I'm going to hit 1,000. The reporter kind of shakes his head, Pete, come on, Pete. Pete's kind of known for exaggeration. He says, Pete, what are you going to hit this year? Takes a few more swings. And he says, I'm going to hit 1,000. The reporter can't believe what he's hearing, kind of gets closer to the batting cage, steps up a bit closer, and says, Pete, seriously, seriously, what are you going to hit this year? Pete takes a few more swings, puts the bat down, and walks over. And he looks at the reporter square in the eyes and says, you asked me what I'm going to hit this year. I am going to hit 1,000. He said, listen, if I do not expect to get a hit every single time I step in the batter's box, then I shouldn't even step in in the first place. So again, every time you pray, I think every time you step into the prayer box, if you will, you should expect to get a hit. Every time you offer your prayer to God, you should expect, this is kind of the point of this evening's message, and I'm just going to give it to you up front. Every time you pray, every time you pray, you should expect that God will answer the way you've prayed the prayer. Now, I realize that for most of us, this sounds a little bit extreme. It, it even sounds a little, I think, presumptuous, maybe to say the least. I mean, you think, you know, again, who am I to expect anything? I mean, and you think, how can I expect every time to get the answer I've prayed for because that just seems, it seems impossible? Experience tells me otherwise that not every time does God answer the way I've prayed. And, and I listen to that and I think, you're exactly right. You know, it, it is really hard, given all that you've experienced and all that you know and how impossible some prayers are, to expect that God will answer. But here's the problem. The Bible, the Bible seems to be telling us something different. Look over at Mark eleven twenty four. We're going to throw it up on the screen. Look at what Jesus says about praying with expectancy. Jesus says this. He says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Look at that verse again. Jesus, Jesus teaching about prayer, says, I tell you, whatever, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe, watch this, that you have received it, that it is yours, that you've already taken hold of it, and then what? And then you will receive it. Do you pray that way? Do you pray, believing whatever you've prayed for, that you already have received it, and one day, no promise of when, sometimes there's a long period of waiting, but do you believe that when you pray it, that you will indeed receive it? I mean, you read a verse like that, and if you're anything like me, you expect to hear that verse, maybe not coming from Jesus, but maybe coming as you go through your channels, if you have cable or direct TV, from some televangelist, right? I mean, you expect, you expect the prayer to begin, my friends... Right? I mean, you expect to hear a guy saying, whatever you ask for in prayer, whatever you ask for, believe you already have it, and maybe there's some dancing and some hitting on the head and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you expect that kind of mindset, that kind of presentation from a statement like this. But Jesus, Jesus says, whatever you ask for in prayer, whatever it is, believe you've already, already received it, and it will be yours. I read that, and I think, I don't pray that. At least, at least not usually. I mean, I think if I'm just being completely honest tonight, that I think my prayers are best described as I hope he will instead of I expect 
he will. I think most of my prayers are more wishful than full of expectation. I mean, I kind of think this, you know, if I have something really big that I've got to pray for, if I can just maybe be good enough, if I can read enough scripture, or if I can do enough good things, if I can hold open enough doors for some nice older ladies or something like that, I mean, if I can just do, you know, help my neighbor do something, then God will be sitting in heaven, he'll see all this, and he'll start writing checks on all these boxes, call the angels over and say, come here, look at Tim, he's doing it. He's doing everything I want him to do. Hey, whatever he's been asking for, let's just give it to him. I mean, that's kind of the way I think. But usually, or always, I'm not good enough, whatever that means. So my expectations don't go as high as maybe Jesus here says they should. A little context for this passage I think is really important, where Jesus says, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you have received it, and it will be yours. The context of this passage is this. Jesus and his disciples are out walking around, they're out teaching, they're going from town to town, and they go through one town, and Jesus is really hungry, and he sees in the distance a fig tree. And he thinks, I'm hungry, I'll go over and get a fig. Jesus walks up to the fig tree, walks up, it's a beautiful fig tree, it's in complete bloom, walks up, and there are no figs at all on the fig tree. In a and a passage of scripture that is really just kind of hard to understand, Jesus looks at the fig tree, curses it, says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, walks away. Next day, Jesus and his, and his disciples are going through the same village again, and they come upon the same tree. It's often in the, in the distance, in Peter. It's usually Peter in stories like this. But Peter sees the fig tree, and he kind of leaves Jesus and the disciples behind, and he runs up to the fig tree, and he looks at it, and the fig tree has completely withered. Peter is absolutely surprised. Isn't that usually how we are? God answers something we've prayed about, and we're more surprised when he does do it than when he doesn't do it, right? Peter sees the fig tree, and he runs back, and he says, hey, rabbi, talking to Jesus, look, come here. Basically, you're not going to believe this. That fig tree last night that you cursed, look at it. It's withered. Yesterday, full leaves. Today, it's nothing. It's just kind of a stump. And Jesus takes advantage of this unique opportunity, and he tells his disciples, and he tells us something, I think, 2,000 years later. He tells us, listen, he says, when, with faith, all things are possible. He even goes the next step. He says, guys, you thought that was cool? Listen, he said, if you would do this, if you would pray that this mountain would be cast into the sea and you had faith and didn't doubt, Jesus said, guess what would happen? That mountain would be cast into the sea. Now that sounds a little otherworldly. It sounds a little bit bizarre, but I think that's the point. I think Jesus is trying to say, you don't comprehend the power you have when you pray. You come before me and you pray, believing with expectation that I'm just big enough to do it. And then you believe that I will do it. But I think herein lies the problem. The tension that all of us have when we see a passage like this. When, when we read through a story like this. We think, you know, we've all got some things that we prayed about. Didn't work out. We've all got some things, some people that we prayed for. And what we prayed for did not happen. I mean, maybe we prayed for a loved one who was sick. And God didn't heal him. Maybe we prayed about a relationship we thought, you know, she's the one, or maybe he's the one, and you prayed, and you prayed, and you prayed, and, and she wasn't the one, or he wasn't the one. Maybe it was a marriage, and you prayed, God, I, I, I know that, you know, you ordained marriage, and you want this to work, but six months, and nine months, and 12 months have gone by, and 
the marriage, the marriage didn't last. Maybe it's a job and you've been praying and praying for a job and God, all I want to do is work. All I want to do is help, you know, provide for my family. Surely you want me to have a job, but the job never came. We prayed for God maybe to show us his will for our life, thinking, God, whatever our will is, you just tell me and I'll go do it. We prayed and we prayed. And the answer we expected didn't come. So now, because we've experienced that when we pray, we don't expect that much. Francis Chan talked about this in his book, Forgotten God, this tension that we all feel about prayer. He wrote this. He said, I think the fear of God failing us leads us to cover for God. He said, this means we ask for less, expect less, and are satisfied with less because we are afraid to ask for or expect more. In other words, because we feel like God has failed us in the past, we don't expect that much from him anymore. If you were in our um, living community a few weeks ago, I shared this story, and I'm going to share it again. I, I just think it fits this so much. When I was 16 years old, my parents got a brand new car. That was not a good decision to get a brand new car the year one of your children turns 16 years old. I think when Andrew and James, as great as they are when they turn 16, we're not getting a new car that year. But my parents got a brand new car, turned 16, got my license, all that kind of fun stuff. I remember the day, clears a bell, July 24th, 1986. It was one of my best friend's birthdays. Me and my buddy, we had the plans to go over and kind of spend the evening over there with him, have a lot of fun, do whatever you know, we had planned to do. And my dad, before I left, said, Tim, I'll let you drive the car tonight. Gave me the keys. I was stoked, right? We take off. We go over there. We have a great time. Curfew is midnight. It's 1130 because I'm a good, you know, I obey my parents, all these kind of things. I say, hey, Jay, well, you know, one of my friends who went with me, it's time to go back home. We get in the car. We take off. Home is 20 minutes away. We're going to make it. We're going to be early for curfew. It's going to be absolutely great. We're driving down the road. We were on, if you know this road, in fact, it doesn't even exist the same way it existed about 25 years ago, Narrows Road in Erlanger. It was right off Turkey Foot. We're driving down the road, and my car, or my parents' car, had a pretty nice stereo. So we turn on the radio, and me and Jay, our favorite song came on the radio. It was Aerosmith and Run DMC, Walk This Way. Maybe you know the song. So we turn up the radio. It's blaring. The road is called Narrows. It's windy. It's narrow. It's I mean, it's just a horrible road. The speed limit is 35 miles an hour. I might have been going 36. Not really sure. But we're driving, we're driving down the road. Jay, my friend, gets out of the car, kind of sits on the window, is holding his hands out, yelling, you know, walk this way. Now, we are having a great time driving down this road. The road is coming to an end where it meets Turkey Foot. As it comes to an end, the road is supposed to kind of curve off to the right. And the road does. The road does curve off to the right. But I was too busy. Jay, thankfully, by this time had gotten back in the car. But I was too busy walking this way or doing whatever. You know, I had the big high tops the whole bit. And as I go to make the turn, instead of making the turn to the right, I keep going to the left, and a guardrail is sitting right there, you know, sovereignly placed by God. There's a guardrail right there because Turkey Foot Road is right behind it. And my car, I'm 16 years old, in a brand new Oldsmobile Calais, doesn't sound like much. My parents' car before this was a 1978 Pinto wagon, if you're old enough to respect that. An absolute piece of junk. The first year my parents had that car, it was in the shop 26 times. That's almost impossible. That's once every two weeks, right? 
absolute clunker lemon of a car, and here I am driving the new Olds Calais, and I miss that last turn, and I meet the guardrail. The guardrail wins the fight. Jay is thankfully, he's in the car. I look over at him. There's a little knot on his head. He's fine. I'm fine. And I get out of the car afraid of what I am going to see. I am scared to death. I know my dad's back home, and I know my dad has a little bit of a temper. And I think, you know, I hope it's just not hurt that bad, but I can see the kind of smoke from the radiator kind of rising. And I get out of the car, and I see what the guardrail has done to the front of the car. Now, Jay, my friend who was with me, is also a pastor's kid, okay? His dad was a pastor of a church, really mainline, kind of very conservative in their expression kind of a church, just right down the middle. And I went to church with him on Sunday nights and Tuesday morning for prayer breakfast, Wednesday night, I mean, the whole bit, I went there. But on Sunday morning, I went with my parents to church. My parents went to a Pentecostal church. I would not have called myself Pentecostal. But when I got out of the car and saw the front of the car and the damage that had been done, suddenly I am very Pentecostal when I see that car. I get out and I look at Jay. The dent is horrible. Steam is rising. We found out later the $6,000 car, I had done $3,000 of damage to it. I mean, if you're going to do it, I mean, go full in. But I look at the car and I look over at Jay and I say, Jay, I know you don't believe this, but I laid my hands on that car and I prayed. I mean, and I prayed and I expected that God was just going to reach down and heal this car. I mean, I thought, what a great story that would be, right? School was going to start a month later, go back to school. Friends would say, hey, what'd you do over the summer? Oh, you know, you went to the beach, you went to the lake, listen to what I did. Had a horrible car accident, wrecked my dad's car, but that's not the story. Here's what happened. God healed my car. It's amazing. No, that didn't happen. Jay, no, really, you should have seen the car. Amazing, it just all came back together. No, we don't believe Jay. The cop will show up to school. He'll say, no, you're not going to believe this. We saw the car. It was a mess, and then God healed the car. Suddenly, I see the plan. God wants revival to take place in Dixie Heights High School, right? They're going to hear the story of how God healed the car. It's a miraculous event. Teenagers are just going to come to the Lord. Oh, we believe in the God who healed the car, you know? I mean, ah, I see God's plan. God doesn't heal the car. Sitting there, the police show up. One police officer, the best police officer in the world. He looks at me, he looks at the car, and he says, oh, this road, this road. They shouldn't even have this road. They should close it down. They, they should re-engineer the road. I'm, I'm here every week on accidents. I'm thinking, can you come to my house and tell my dad that it's the road's fault? You know, can, can you do that? He's great. He, you know, says, you know, you know he's just a, 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 a great officer. I go home. And I have to tell my dad what I've done to his brand new car. That if he thought the Ford Pinto wagon was a lemon, wait till he sees what I've done. My dad, like I said, has got a little bit of a temper. So I'm kind of afraid of what he's going to do and, and how bad it might hurt. Okay? My dad looks at me and he says, um, where's your license? I nervously kind of reach in my back pocket and I kind of shake with my hand and hand it to him. He looks at that, reaches over, grabs a pair of scissors, cuts it in half and hands it back to me. Really haven't talked about that accident much since. <laughs> but that night, I wrecked my parents' car, and I prayed, expecting God to heal the car. I believed, I believed. I, I mean, up until recently, I had not prayed that hard in my life, expecting God to do something. Then I prayed that night. God didn't do it. And listen, you've got some stories. 
Maybe not exactly like that. Maybe Run DMC doesn't show up in your story. But you've got some stories a lot like that where you prayed and you prayed and you believed and you even expected. And God didn't do it. And there's just some unanswered questions and there's some tension there. The story that we're going to look at tonight is a great story that addresses this. It is a story that as soon as we turn there, many of you are going to know the story. If you've grown up in church, you've heard it since you were a little kid. You could, you could come up here and tell the story. It's just that good of a story. If you brought your Bibles, turn over to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel's about midway through your Bible. If you hit Psalms or Proverbs, go a little further. If you go to Matthew or Mark, go back a few, uh, a few pages and you're going to find Daniel chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of the background into our story tonight. Back around 600 BC, the nation of Babylon had invaded and conquered Israel. And one of Babylon's tactics of war, and this was really, this was really brilliant, their king Nebuchadnezzar came up with this plan. And he said, you know, once we conquer a country, once we take over their land and, 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 and just, you know, completely take the country over, we're not going to put all the people to death. We're not going to slaughter them. We're not even going to enslave all the people. What we're going to do is we're going to take the best and the brightest this country has to offer, and we're going to bring them back to Babylon. And by doing that, Nebuchadnezzar's plan was brilliant. He said, if we can bring the best and the brightest of every country that we conquer, if we have the best artisans, the best teachers, the best thinkers, the best craftsmen, then we will develop a nation that is really second to none. So when they conquered Israel, they did this. And they brought back some of the best and some of the brightest for the names you might be familiar with. They brought back with them Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to talk about the last three in the story tonight. Look at how Daniel chapter 1 describes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's great. Over in chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, it says this. About Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it says, These were young men without any physical defect. They were handsome, showed aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them, the king, the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years and after that, they were to enter the king's service. I mean, how about that for a bio? I mean, God himself inspires the writer of Daniel. This is how I want you to describe these guys. They're good looking. They're smart. They're wise. You find out later that God infuses in them wisdom that can only come from God. I mean, you read that and you think, you know, their proverbial cup is just running over. And you're thinking, God, you didn't even give me a cup, Right? I mean, these guys, they kind of have it all. Well, Babylon is a very diverse country because the king keeps bringing in all these people from all these different nations, the best and the brightest, but a problem kind of arose because all these people who came in also came from many different religious backgrounds. And this became a problem for Nebuchadnezzar because the king, like most kings, had a super inflated sense of ego. And he wanted to know that the people really put him on the top of their list. That they really thought everything they needed, everything they really got in life, came from the king's hand. But suddenly all these people, the best and the brightest the world had to offer, believed that when push came to shove, everything really didn't come from the king. It really came from their God. So he comes up, the king does, with an interesting plan. Look at Daniel 3, verse 1. It says this. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 
60 cubits high and six cubits wide, which is 90 feet by nine feet, basically. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So, the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had, had set up. And they stood before it. Then the king loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, in other words, you're not going to miss it. You're going to know when it's time. You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. He knew there'd be some pushback. If you don't want to do that, if you still want to serve the gods you came with, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Those were the options. You can follow the king and bow down and worship, or you can die. Take your pick. Whatever you want to do, you can bow down and worship or die. But one way or another, King Nebuchadnezzar was saying, you are going to follow me. You are going to put your faith and your hope and your trust in me. No more of this other God kind of stuff. It's me. It wasn't about the image of gold. It was all about King Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to follow. You're going to trust. You're going to put your faith and hope in me. And sure enough, it was an amazing success. Whenever the music played, everybody stopped what they were doing. They dropped everything, and they bowed in the direction of this idol. It was an absolute amazing success. But while it was successful, there was a little, tiny, small wrinkle. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 reads like this. It says, At this time, some astrologers came forward, and they denounced the Jews. Real quick, here's what's going on here. When all the king's men, so to speak, when they got to first meet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they met them when the king was talking about how great and wonderful they were. In the first chapter, we read that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in Babylon, and the king notices them. He notices their wisdom, their smarts. He notices everything about them, and he says there's something unique. There's something special about these guys. He even goes the next step to loudly proclaim amongst all of his advisors, all these people who work for him, he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are ten times better than all of my other advisors. That didn't sit well with his other advisors. They'd been looking for a chance to catch him. So here's what they say. They said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, says, O king, live forever. Live forever. You've met people like that. Said, you have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down, must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But... There are some Jews, you know, the Jews that you really think highly of, that you even brought in, these foreigners, these outsiders, and you've put them in charge of the capital city, those guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There are some who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Jealousy, hatred, insecurity is running rampant through Babylon. 
the king, in the back of his mind, in the very beginning, when he established this 90 feet high gold, gold image, the king knew, I'm doing this because as much as I love these Jews who have came over, as much as I think highly of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I know I don't have them. This is how I'll get them. Look down at verse uh, 13. It says, furious with rage, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, with anger but also with a little bit of a broken heart, he said, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now listen, when you hear the sound of the horn and flute and zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, said, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image, very good. We won't even worry about what you've done in the past. This is just what I want you to do. Just do that for me. Just do that. We'll be done. But listen, if you don't, if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And here's a strong statement. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, I think you and I have all faced situations kind of like this before, right? Now, of course, they're not exactly the same. I mean, we might not be as smart or as good-looking as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There might not be an egomaniacal tyrant who's kind of standing over us. But we've all faced situations like that. I mean, maybe you're facing them now. Maybe you feel like you're at the mercy of a boss or a professor or a teacher. Maybe you're at the mercy of your finances. Maybe you feel like you're at the mercy of some health issue, the mercy of some circumstance, the mercy of other people. Whatever it may be, you face a mountain in your life, and it brings you to your knees. And the tension we feel in that moment is that there is just so much uncertainty. There is just so much fear. And we just kind of get blinded by that. And then you hear a message like tonight's, and you think, with all that's going on in my life, with all that God hasn't done, how can I expect him to come through? Yeah, I know all things are possible with God. But if I'm just being honest, I don't know why God has allowed things to get to this point. I mean, maybe God doesn't have a plan. I mean, maybe it's just not going to work out right for me because it hasn't worked out well up to this point. So as I hear, how can I really pray with expectancy? Because everything I've experienced says something else. And see, herein lies, lies the choice that all of us face in difficult situations, when things are just uncertain, when we don't know how things are going to work out. We have, we, have, we have a choice to make, and it's one of two things. You either expect God or you expect yourself. You either trust God to make it work, trust God to make a way, expect him to do it, or you think, I've got to find a way to make this work out somehow because up until now, I can't see where God has you either decide, I'm going to trust him, or I'm going to trust myself. And that's why I love the story. Because the next thing that comes out of these mouths, of these guys, is so unbelievably insightful. The next few words that come out of their mouths really answer the question, what am I supposed to do when I don't know what's going to happen next? 
What am I supposed to do when I can't see what God's plan is? What am I supposed to do when life is just full of uncertainty? Look at what takes place. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply to the king. They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. We all think that. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Come on, don't you just love that? I mean, isn't that absolutely fantastic? They are standing in front of the most powerful man in the world. There are no checks and balances. Whatever he says goes. They have just been handed a death sentence if they fail to obey. And their response is not just, okay, God, we believe you're able. We hope you do this. That's not their response. They know he's able. And they tell the king They voice it aloud. They say, God is able. And king, listen, God is going to show up and he's going to do it. I mean, look at that passage again. It's just, I mean, look at how it begins. The first thing they tell the king, they tell the king, we don't need to defend ourselves uh, before you in this matter. In other words, king, you think this is about us and it's about you and it's about this image. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's all about God. I mean, what a great perspective to have when we face uncertainty, when we face a problem. We think it's about us. We think about how can we make this work and kind of do this thing and manipulate it here and kind of move it this way so it will work out. It's not about us to begin with. They say, King, we know it's not about you. It's not about us. It's all about God. But then they admit the problem is real. Living with expectant faith is not saying the problem doesn't exist. They tell the king, we know you're going to throw us into this blazing furnace. We know you're going to do that. But I love the next part. They view God as much more than able. They see God as an active presence in their life. And they're just foolish enough or maybe wise enough to say we expect him to come through in our darkest hour. I mean, and that's really the heart of what we're talking about tonight. God does not want us to believe he can. He wants us to realize He will. God does not want us to believe he is a God who did. He wants us to see him as a God who still does. So because of that, seeing God that way, we can pray expecting him to move. I love what the next verse does because it points out really what's going on here. Look at how they finish their remarks to the king. They look at the king and they've just said, God is going to deliver us. God's going to do that. But then they say, but even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. In other words, they say this, king, we expect God to move, but we don't know if he will. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what's gonna happen. But our faith is just in the God who's not just able but in the God who we believe still does. We know, King, it doesn't make sense. We know what you're going to do to us. We know what, according to you, what the future holds, but we're expecting God to deliver us. I mean, what a great lesson about praying with expectancy. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego admitted, we don't know what's going to happen, but that's not going to impact or affect how, how we pray. 
If you've heard the story before, do you remember how the story ends? It's great. The, st- the story ends, Nebuchadnezzar is just livid. He's as mad as he can be, and he calls his guards over and says, immediately, throw them in to the, to the fiery furnace, but before you do that, turn it up. He turns it up seven times hotter than it usually is. The guards take them over there, and as they get close, they're not met by the flames. They're met by the heat from the flames, and the guards fall over dead. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are kind of, just kind of standing there. They fall in to the fiery furnace. They're in the furnace, and suddenly, a fourth figure appears in the furnace. God did not leave them alone, and they weren't even harmed by the fire. King Nebuchadnezzar is watching all of this take place. He can see what's going on, and look at what he does. Verse 26 to 28, it says, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Don't you love that? I mean, a few minutes ago, it was, I'm the Most High God. I'm the guy you you should be worshiping. Oh, now my guards are dead and you're fine. Servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who walked into the furnace, watching guards fall left and right, they're in the furnace. Suddenly there's a fourth figure there, not really sure what's going on, but they suddenly realize, hey, God is with us. We're not alone here. They suddenly hear a voice telling them, come out. They look at each other. I guess we're done. They walk out of the furnace. I love what takes place next. They come out of the fire. Watch this. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. I bet they did. (laughs) They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed, Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. It's not in there, but I'm pretty sure their next line was, "Uh uh-oh, right? I mean, that's what they probably thought. If God saved them, we're in trouble. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. Let me ask you a question. If an hour earlier, if somebody asked you, Hey, what are the odds that King Nebuchadnezzar is going to say, praise be to the God of these three young Jewish men whose country we just whipped in war and he didn't do a thing to save them. What are the odds he's going to say, praise be to that God? Zero. Zilch. Right? Until, until three men in very difficult circumstances said, King, you know what? We serve a God who's able. And we expect him to deliver us. Yeah, king, I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know what his plan is. We very well may go into the furnace. He very, way, he very well may have a plan that has us dying here today. We don't know what God's going to do. But that certainly, the outcome, does not change our expectation of what our God will do. We're just foolish enough to believe that God's going to deliver us. Nebuchadnezzar goes on. He's so far said, praise be to the God. And now he goes, they trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own. Therefore, he said, I decree, and he's such, he lives in such extremes, Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, I decree that the people of 
any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their homes be turned into piles of rubble for no God can save in this way. And all his advisors again said, uh-oh. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Isn't that powerful? They didn't know what God was going to do. God had not told them what he was going to do. All they knew was that they stood before a king who said, if you don't worship me, you will die. And they said, that's not, that's not how we live. You're not the God that we serve. We believe in a God who is able, but much more than that, we believe in a God who is going to deliver us from your hand. And even if he doesn't do it, that doesn't change anything. Even though things look bleak, we're going to believe in our God who is able and who will deliver us. Last story I want to share with you tonight is this. Um, there's a man in Monterey, Mexico. His name is Edgar. He runs a children's home. He has about 50 kids who live at this children's home, and it's his responsibility every day, every week, every month, every year to make sure these kids are provided for. He has to make sure they have food, that they have clothing, that they have heat in, in the wintertime, that they have shelter. It's his job to make sure this takes place. But as you can probably guess, in Monterey, Mexico, at an orphanage of about, of about 50 people, finances, money, resources are pretty hard to come by. So this, it's in November, about five, six years ago, and the money was tight, and the food was getting lesser and lesser and lesser, and they come to the end of the of of the month, and it's lunchtime one day, and they just have enough food, Ed, Ed, Edgar does, to make a lunch for all of these 50 kids. But when lunch ends, there's no more food. There's no more food in the, in the cupboards. So Edgar gathers around these children, and he says, listen, children, we're out of food. We're not going to have supper tonight, but we're going to pray that God will provide. So they begin to pray, and they begin to thank God for a meal they have not yet received. The prayer begins, and Edgar says, you know, dear God, thank you for the many blessings you've given us. Lord, you know the situation we're in now, and tonight we need you to deliver us to bring us some food. Little four-year-old kid, his name is Joel, he speaks up. He interrupts the prayer, and he says, Tio, meaning uncle, he says, um, what kind of food do you think God delivers? Edgar says, well, I'm not sure what God will deliver, but why don't we pray to the God who loves you, who wants to lavish his love and his grace and his riches upon you to pray for food tonight. So they begin to pray, and they're praying more for food. And Tio's thinking, of, or the little, boy, the little boy Joel is thinking about this, and he says, Tio, Tio, he says, um, you think God will bring us, I don't know, you, th you think God will bring us meat? Ed Edgar kind of laughs, and Ed Edgar says, I think God could do that. He said, why don't you pray to the Lord who loves you and pray in the name of the Lord, expecting big things from God. So they begin to pray a little bit more. Joel's listening to the prayer, and he interrupts Ed, Ed, Edgar again. He says, Edgar, Tio, he said, do you think, you know, meat, what kind of meat do you think God will bring us? That same day, in Monterey, Mexico, there's another uh, set of children's homes, 
and they're run by a couple, Beth and Todd Guckenberger. And Beth writes about this story in, an, in a book she's written. And she says that day, not knowing at all what's going on with Edgar and the kids over here, she is at her children's home working in the phone ranks. And there's a man from the States, his name is Carlos, and he's in Monterey, Mexico this week at a vendor's convention in downtown Monterey. And he said, Beth, I met you and Todd a few months ago back in, back in, in Cincinnati. I'm here in town. The convention that I'm, uh, that I'm here for has ended a bit early. Would you guys be free to have supper tonight? I said, yeah, we can do that. So she, you know, plans that supper for about 6 o'clock that night. Just a few minutes later, the phone rings again. It's Carlos again. He said, Beth, I forgot to mention this when we were talking. I'm here at this convention, and I have some product left over. And I really have nothing to do with it or, or, or nothing that I can, you know, no place to take it. It's been thawing all day long, and it's going to go bad tonight. Could you have Todd come over with a truck, and you guys can just take all of this stuff? She said, at that moment, I remembered what this guy did for a living. He, was, he worked for a meat company, and he was a vendor. He was in Monterey, Mexico, with a lot of meat at, the, at this convention. So she calls Todd, tells him about their dinner plans, and says, Carlos wants you to go and take the pickup truck, and he has some extra meat left over, and he wants to give it to us for, um, for the home and for the kids here. Todd goes. Todd goes, and he gets the meat, and there is just a ton of meat. Todd calls back and talks to Beth and says, Beth, we've got a little bit of a problem here. He has so much meat here that there's no way we can use it in our home or even all the other homes that we kind of work with you know, what can we do with it? He said, do this. He said, some of the other children's homes that we're kind of affiliated with, give them a call and tell them we've got a whole lot of extra meat and that we're just going to start bringing it to these places. So Beth gets on the phone. First call she makes is to Edgar. Edgar's stop is the first one that Todd's going to be as, as he's dropping this meat off. She calls Edgar. Says, hey, Edgar. Hey, Beth, how are you? Said, um, hey, Todd has got some food a lot of leftover food, and, and he would like to know if, if he could bring it over to your orphanage this, this afternoon. And Edgar listens and says, um, sure, what kind of food is it? And Beth says, well, um, I'm not really sure, but I know it's, it's some kind of meat. And Edgar says, really? He said, um, could you find out what kind of meat it is? <laughs> Beth says, Edgar, what does it really matter what kind of meat it is? It's meat, it's free food. Edgar said, it does matter. Can you find out and give me a call? So she hangs up. She calls her husband. She says, hey, I just talked to Edgar. Edgar wants to know what kind of meat you're bringing. And she said, oh, or he said, Beth, you're not going to believe it. It is some of the best meat there is. This is high-end stuff, Beth. It's steak. It is steak, Beth. It is some of, it's, oh, it's beautiful. High-end cuts of pork and steak. and Oh, it's beautiful. She gets on the phone. She calls Edgar. She says, Edgar, I found out what kind of meat we're bringing. He said, what kind do you have? She said, Edgar, it's steak. It's good stuff, Edgar. Phone kind of goes silent. And in a breathy voice, Edgar says, praise God. He calls over the orphans. And he brings Joel real close. And he says, Joel, we prayed today and we didn't have any food. We prayed to the God who loves us the God who cares for us. And guess what, Joel? You wondered what kind of meat God is going to supply, what kind of meat God is going to deliver. Let's go stand outside because God's bringing you steak tonight, Joel. Say, listen, whatever 
we're faced with. Whatever the question is, whatever the uncertainty is, the response for us is just to say, God, the problem is really yours. And I'm just gonna expect you to deliver. I don't know what you're gonna do. I don't know how it's gonna look like, but that's really not my issue. All you call me to do is say, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've already received it and I will deliver it. That's the God we serve. Let's pray to him.